Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. Hosts tonight, we've got myself, Ro Murray on the desk, Paul Callaghan, and Vanessa Taholka. Good evening, everyone. Hey. Hello. Yay. So you're both very rugged up. I've got to point out that there's <laughs> scarves and beanies and fluffy jumpers ahoy. I'm absolutely loving the Melbourne vibe. Yes, yes. Have you felt the crisp air out there? Oh, it's revolting. I'm, I'm, I'm huddling up to my CPU to keep warm. <laughs> Hugging the computers. <laughs> well, we are a tech show after all, which we absolutely love. So um, we wanted to have a quick look at what's coming up on in the show. So we're going to have a little bit of a look at the news, the weird, wonderful and the upcoming, and there's quite a bit of weird out there. So uh, we're looking forward to having a chat about that. We're also going to talk to Gerard Brody, the CEO of the Consumer Action Law Centre, as we look at banking scams. This is something that impacts everyone, so definitely worth having a listen to. Plus, we're also talking to Associate Professor Sam Wilson to unwrap what data journalism is and what it's going to mean for credibility and integrity in journalism. So data journalism, what is it? We're looking forward to finding out as well. But I'm very curious. Vanessa, how's your week in tech been? My week in tech has been very good, um, but lots of, you know, user testing. Uh, yeah, that's where I'm at. What about you, Paul? Uh, was it this week that Teams went down everywhere? Oh, <laughs> yes. That was huge. <laughs> huge. Obviously just slipped straight back into Teams. But, yeah, I think that that's probably the, the highlight, just realising how, how dependent we've all become on that single piece of software, that single point of failure. Mm. Um, Big very, time. Very strange. Mm-hmm. Horrific. Well, my, my week in tech's been completely uneventful, which I think is how tech stuff should be. Yes. Just working the, like the magic. Yeah. Working like magic. Here you go. Being hugged for warmth. <laughs> <laughs> That's, it's a symbiotic relationship if you, if you keep them close. You're just, you're just trying <laughs> they to do well a by cyborg. You. That's your plan, right? Yeah, Eventually. just don't let the fluffy scarves get too near those, the fans and things. It's uh, quite bad for it. <laughs> that is, that's not quite so good. Hey, there was some good news this week, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a few weeks ago, we were speaking about how um, Choice and a few other people had reported that Bunnings and Kmart were using in-store facial recognition. And we're trying to unpack to what degree they were using it, you know, what the public had knew about it, what sort of um, information notices were present within stores. And uh, it created quite a lot of um, kind of coverage and a, and a bit of pressure from the public um, and consumer advocacy groups to maybe reconsider this decision and is it really necessary to be surveilling your, your customers this way. So Choice subsequently referred the retailers to the Office of the Australian Information Commissioner for potential breaches of the Privacy Act in late June. And um, it led to the good guys, owned by JB Hi-Fi, to pause its use of facial recognition and now Bunnings and Kmart have, um, have hopped on board as well. So that, I think that's quite a win for consumers in that if you're going to be doing this, you want to have a really good reason um, and, and probably not a great idea to be setting up facial recognition databases, including anyone who walks into your store. And I think as well, like we talk a lot on the show a lot about kind of what our listeners can do, but also broader media literacy. And it it's really speaks to that, like people understand what the downside of this technology is now and can kind of make a call on, hang on, do we actually want want that to be in our lives? Yeah, absolutely. It's... um. <laughs> It's one of those things when when this kind of technology hits a consumer brand and such a big, successful consumer brand, it takes a lot of these philosophical, ethical questions right down to the heart, you know? It really yeah. Yeah, change, changes it all. 
Um, but speaking of taking things right down to the heart, um, <laughs> I, I did ask the question before the show, does this need a content warning? I don't know. Maybe this does need a content warning. If um, furry eight-legged friends aren't your friends, just go la 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 with your fingers over your ears just for a quick moment. How's this for a headline, kids? Spider corpses make terrific claw machine grabbers. So researchers at Rice University in Texas are using the dead remains of spiders to create tiny claw machines. This um, is a form of soft robotics, and the researchers who've repurposed these dead spiders as basically mechanical grippers believe that they are perfect for blending into natural environments to pick up objects <laughs> such as other insects that outweigh them. Frankenstein's spider monster. <laughs> uh, all I can do is think about, you know, the arcade and the picking up of the toys in, in the claw I machine. I know, which we all big tarantula going, yeah. Yeah, Mooncake has been, you know, posting some amazing yes. videos of claw machine action lately, and we all know that, uh, as, as Daniel on Breakfast has said today, I think today, you know, if, if someone could do a service for the world and, you know, they had to service those machines, they could really tighten up that claw, give it a bit of, a bit of talk. Oh, in our dreams. <laughs> in our fluffy toy winning dreams. <laughs> they even call this soft robotics and you're just like, are they purposeless claw, spider claws that also kind of look like they'll grasp something and then sort of let it go. Well, I must say, I I did look a little bit deeper past the press release and um, they weren't really clear on how they plan on using this in the future. (laughs) No, no, tell us what you're actually doing with it. No. So we'll see. We'll see, you know, Skynet and all that. It's like a full-blown David Cronenberg future that we're just sleepwalking into. Just, just yeah. James Bond, even. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Bugs that are bugs. Yeah. Oh, indeed. But uh, speaking of robotics, we're actually, we've got a pretty robotic-heavy uh, news segment. A robotic dog, um, for, the, for those listening at home, I'm doing the whole two-finger flick, eh, eh, joins the WA police force. <laughs> it would not be an episode of Bite Without Me attempting to put the boot into the Boston Dynamics robot dogs. We know they're trying to make them look cute. Um, we also know they're capable of shooting us all in the face. So, and there's um, that famous Black Mirror episode, which many of us have seen. Yes, yeah. just, uh, just squicks all around. And on that note, I'm going to introduce you to Spot, uh, West Australian Police's Bomb Response Unit's newest member. So they've gone and bought themselves a Boston Dynamics dog. They've- this is kind of great. I mean, we've been using robots in bomb disposal units for a long time. Yes. At least 80s films tell me so. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have any insider knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> well, they've, they've gone and coughed up for a spot. I did see um, uh, someone on Twitter, Ange Mary Claire, had, had said, why did they choose to make it look like a Walkman and they have. They've chosen a kind of a yellow plastic coating with a black trim and it absolutely looks like a, a you know an, an early 90s Walkman or something. Mm. Um, and absolutely it makes so much sense for you know Spot to be going in there and you know encasing bombs or dismantling bombs um, but the official police statement has said Spot's job will be to weigh into the dangerous and high risk situations, you know bombs, mm. suspicious items mm. or armed offenders. Wow. I repeat armed Offenders, mm. so that does include people, and maybe spider corpses, and maybe maybe with a bit of luck, a lot spider of corpses, a lot of arms. Yeah. <laughs> oh gosh, um, and robot dogs are also uh, made made the news on on the Bitcoin front this week. Does anyone want to have a chat about that quickly? Yeah. So so just kind of building on the our, our 
robot dog and crypto like two things which we love to talk about <laughs> on the show is that um there was a young man uh, in the uk who managed to throw out his hard drive containing a significant amount of crypto and so it now is basically buried in a landfill um, and part of the big plan that he has to to find that uh, is to get two robot dogs to basically mine the um the tip and try and find his hard drive it's a pretty big operation there's um there's an interview that you can go read with him on businessinsider.com um and talks about it as a finding a needle in a haystack but he's got a i think a 12 million dollar version of the plan and a six million dollar version of the plan um to find this this kind of bitcoin cache oh using God. robot dogs wow. um must have a few a few Doge coins yeah. stashed away uh, on that. <laughs> so maybe maybe less armed defenders, but probably uh, quite smelly and stinky. A couple of seagulls. Yeah, a couple of seagulls. Gross. <laughs> now, we do have to go to the most Russian news ever. Right? Oh, it's the most Russian news ever. Um, last week, a chess-playing robot, and this has been... Chess-playing robots, whether they've been AI or physical robots, have been a thing for a really, really long time. Um, and this all came down to the speed of human reaction. So... Um, the chess-playing robot was playing with a seven-year-old boy who moved a little bit too rapidly to shift a piece. Computer didn't compute, and um, the robot grabbed and broke his finger during a match at the Moscow Open. So um, Sergei Lazarov, the president of the Moscow Chess Federation, told the TASS news agency that Machine had, had played heaps of previous ex- exhibition matches before, no problems, no upset, and was quoted as saying, this is, of course, bad. Sure, but uh, as much as it's fun to make jokes like, you know, they've never yelled at the umpire before, uh, it is really, it's it's so tempting to misread a bunch of emotions into this when really you look at that arm and you think, I don't know that an arm that strong should actually be in this close proximity to humans, let alone tiny humans. Mm. And there's a whole lot of other, you know, sort of poor decisions going on there. Uh so please yeah. don't put too much personality behind, you know, the AI of that. Oh, absolutely. That robot. It's just it's down to poor programming and inadequate, you know, hardware response times and that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. And, it, and it did take three human people to extract said child from said robot. So mm. it wasn't a, whoops, we've got a fail-safe built in in case this happens. It was a, okay, get the wrenches out. Yeah, so. where was the hit the red button? That was really odd. Anyway. No, it's mm. just not good. Mm. Excellent. There you go. Hey, in much... Bigger news, Paul, what's going on with Meta and Apple at the moment? Yeah. It does sound philosophical almost, (laughs) even with those names. Uh, So, I mean, obviously Meta rebranding from Facebook has kind of started to position themselves as you know, the a company focused on the metaverse um, and Mark Zuckerberg in a recent um, all-staff meeting um, with Meta employees um, basically has has said that he feels that Meta is in a kind of a competition with Apple, and it's a philosophical one. It's about the ideas of whether or not the metaverse is going to be open, um, as Zuckerberg wants it to be, or whether or not it's going to be like Apple. It's going to be quite closed and proprietary and sort of product focus. It's it's difficult to to sort of take that seriously when Meta is clearly a company designed to extract the maximum kind of emotional value uh, as well as kind of capital value from a person. So the idea that it's it's pushing for an open metaverse, even if you subscribe to the idea ideas behind the metaverse, um, it's just it's two giant companies trying to fight for fight for your money or trying to build a future in which they're able to fight. In which they own money. all of the land, yeah. And it like, is the ultimate land grab right and now. And not even land, but like literally virtual land, yeah. you know, things that don't exist, exactly exist 
Um, so yeah, Mark Zuckerberg says, um, I think it's pretty clear that Apple is going to be a competitor for us, not just as a product, but philosophically. We're approaching this in an open way and trying to build a more open ecosystem, um, trying to make more stuff interoperable with Android, trying to develop the metaverse in a way where you can bring virtual goods but this, from world world to another. This positioning of Facebook as, sorry, Meta as open versus Apple as closed is so interesting when it's much more Apple as respecting privacy. And, you know, so they're trying to, you know, frame that argument. Yeah. Anyway, we'll, we'll get onto that more, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. Triple R. Coming into our first, first interview of the evening earlier this month, um, the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, which is the ACCC, um, released our annual targeting scams report. And in response to that research tonight, we welcome Jared Brody, CEO of Consumer Action Law Centre, to discuss what more banks could be doing to stop scams and protect their customers. Thanks for joining us, Jared. Great to talk to you. Um, so give us the, the high level of, of the report. What, what was in it? What was going on? Yeah, so this is an annual report that the ACCC publishes um, that brings together um, all the reports from the public about scams that have been made to regulators and banks and other institutions over the last 12 months. And what it showed is that the first time ever that uh, in the last year, 2021, there was more than $2 billion um, lost in scams, uh, which is a pretty phenomenal figure. Um, And the report also points out that that's likely to be uh, the tip of the iceberg because a lot of scams go unreported. Uh, people who lose money can feel, you know, shameful or um, unsure what their rights are and don't actually make a complaint, don't report it to a regulator and just, you know, blame their naivety or, or silliness um, and, and therefore it's unreported. So, in fact, it's probably billions of dollars more than, than $2 billion which is just a, a, a really a, a national scandal, really. It's a, it's a blight on the economy and um, not only hurts individuals and families with those losses, but really holds back the um, economy. I mean, $2 billion, that is, that is a huge amount of, of cash, as, as you've said. Like what, what, when, we, when you say scams, what, what are the extents of that? What are the dimensions? So the scams are varied and many that are covered by this report. One of the biggest areas of scams are sort of bank transfer scams, uh, where people who are effectively tricked into transferring money online to another party um, who they don't really intend. So an example might be uh, a romance scam. Um, you know, you might meet someone online, they're you know, developing a relationship, and, and then over time they're encouraging you to send money. Um, you think you're sending it to someone that you've fallen in love with, but in fact uh, it's going to a fraudster. Another example is um, uh, investment scams. There are sort of fake websites established by invest, you know, fraudsters that look like banks or investment companies that people then transfer money to, uh, or crypto is a, a huge growing area of scam losses as well, where uh, there are sort of fake uh, crypto platforms established um, and, and people are often um, groomed into thinking, you know, it might look like you're succeeding for a period of time and your investment goes up and that encourages you to put more give more to them, um, but the whole thing is a sham and uh, in the end their money is lost. So those are the types of scams um, that we're seeing that are, are growing a lot. 
Jared, I wonder, uh, Vanessa here, I wonder when people do massive transfers in their life, it's often around something like buying a home if they're lucky enough to get in the market or, or something mm. like that. But, you know, what I've been hearing anecdotally is that um, years ago there was a – someone managed to intersect a PEXA payment and, um, yes. and inter- you know, and those people got covered by insurance and got paid back eventually for losing their house deposit in that scam. But I hear that these days, you know, banks are making people sign letters saying, okay, well, let's call the person at the other end of this alleged transfer, confirm the number, and then the money's gone, and you've signed – a waiver so that you're not protected by insurance there anymore. You know, is, is this an area that um, that you've weighed in on? Yeah, absolutely. We're really concerned that the refund rights or reimbursement rights for consumers who lose money from scams are woeful in Australia. Um, we did some analysis just a few months ago of complaints made to the Australian Financial Complaints Authority, um, and that's the place you can go to complain about your bank if you don't think they're um, treated you fairly, and it's like an ombudsman service. Um, and we looked at determinations issued by AFCA related to scams over a four-month period, um, and I think we looked at 67 determinations in detail, and only five of them were in favour of the consumer. Um, and so what that tells us is that, that, that you know consumers aren't succeeding when it comes to getting their money back from banks. And the problem with that is that, you know, uh, banks are not really incentivised to um, invest in measures to detect and, and prevent scam transactions from occurring. Um, uh, you compare that to other sorts of fraudulent activity um, like card fraud. Um, or, or it's called card not present fraud, or sometimes card skimming. Now, this might be where you get a call from your bank and said some, there's been some transactions on your credit card um, where clearly you didn't authorise them. In those instances, because it is unauthorised, um, you uh, get your money back. The bank is required to refund you. But in the other scam transactions that I'm talking about, you know, the customer is the one facilitating the transaction. They might be entering the pay-anyone function of their banking app to make that transaction. Um, and so, therefore, the bank considers, considers it's authorised and um, you're not entitled to a, a reimbursement. Now, that's pretty inconsistent. And if you look at that first category I mentioned, the, the card fraud, the level of losses in that has actually come down a lot because the banks have this incentive to um, invest in measures, technology and other ways, to, to really reduce that, the risk of that occurring, um, and which is great, which you want your banks to do. Banks should be in charge of safety of the finance system, um, but they're not uh, incentivised in the same way at the moment when it comes to scam losses. What what is the I mean one of the examples um, in the report which I think speaks to what you're talking about is this I, this kind of technical idea of just having this confirmation of PE um, mm-hmm. where it just checks that when you type in this is definitely going to this person like the bank automatically presumably checks that um, if they're not implementing something like, that feels like a no brainer and they're not being incentivized what's the what's the driver for that what's the rationale from a bank's perspective not to to kind of implement technology or features like that? Yeah, well, that's a, a really good question. So uh, when you when you do um, a bank transfer through your internet banking using, you know, the BSB and account number, um, the bank prompts you often to also type in the name of the account of the person you're sending the money to. But there's no confirmation between the bank. It sort of doesn't double-check that it's going to the right 
account um, that link, that's linked with that person. Um, it only looks at the numbers, not, not what you put in as the account name. Um, and so that's a real missed opportunity for the bank to make sure that the transaction is correct, is genuine. Um, and it's been something that's been called out by regulators for years that the banks should fix and improve. Look, the banks have done some initiatives. I'll give them that. Um, there's, there's an initiative that's called um, Pay ID, um, which does link your bank account uh, with uh, perhaps a phone number or, a, or an email address. Um, and so instead of uh, using the BSB and account number, you, you type in the phone number of the person you want to send the money to and it'll pop up and say, did you mean this person, um, Mr. Smith or, so, or whatever. Um, and so that does that in that way link the name with the account number and I think that is a good thing. The problem is that the rollout of that technology has been extremely slow and the burden falls on the consumer to, to you know, set that up inside their internet banking app and it's not necessarily simple um, and, and most people I, that I speak to uh, really haven't done it unless they are tech savvy. Um, and in fact, if you look at the overall number of transactions that happen, um, uh, there are only about one in five transactions are being used through the pay ID system versus the old uh, BSB and account numbers system. And, I, and to go to the crux of your question, why haven't the banks done more? Look, I think it's because they don't face the incentive. They don't wear the cost. If there is a scam loss, um, the customer uh, generally uh, bears that loss. So they don't have that financial incentive to really invest um, in, in those sort of measures to um, make sure that, you know, scams are less likely to, to occur. For sure. Um, there was one point that you raised that I've, I found really interesting. Um, you know, you were talking about how not only are they incentivised with their credit card programs and that security, it's something that the, the banking consumers, we're all really used to it and, the, you know, certain banks have even made it a security feature. Oh, we've got the Falcon, you know, and they are really quick to get on the phone and it's something that, you know, we're, we're really used to. But um, I, I am wondering, is is part of the issue as well that consumers are a little bit less confident with the bank transfer piece. Once, the, once they sort of put in a BSB and account number, they don't really see what happens after that. They don't know the process it goes through. Um, do, do you think part of the under-reporting or, you know, lack of ability to recover the money also comes from just consumers not being aware of the risks and issues? Uh, look, I think that's right. Um, and people aren't aware of, of their rights often, you know, I think that's across the board with consumer rights is that you don't really know what your mm. rights are until you need to know them. And I think that's definitely the case with scams. I mean, I would be encouraging anyone that is subject to a scam and has a loss to still complain to the bank because even though I'm saying the banks don't generally refund you, uh, that they, they should be in many occasions according to existing laws. So uh, there are general duties on banks to, um, you know, if they're suspicious that a, a transaction is fraudulent, they should be ta uh, taking measures to stopping that transaction proceeding until they're, you know, ensuring themselves that it is a genuine transaction. Um, and so, you know, they, that means that they really should be on the lookout for red flags. And so I'd be encouraging people to make complaints. Um, I, I do think we do need rules in this area that are clearer 
as well, because I think that will just strengthen the hands of consumers. They'll know their rights more clearly, as you say, and will have more accountability um, in the payment system. Um, and just to just to pick up off on that, like as well as knowing kind of just consumers knowing their rights, like what what practical advice would you give to our listeners who, are, you know, feeling like they they want to do more or they want to kind of get their bank more engaged? Well, the first thing when it comes to scams is, you know, if you get those unsolicited text messages or calls, um, hang up, don't don't click on links. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's easier said than done, of course, because sometimes these are very sophisticated scams that trick us in, in really clever ways. But I would encourage people, you know, to, to really avoid um, those sort of links and, and text messages. Um, and also on social media, um, uh, don't be making any sort of transactions unless you really know that the other party um, and get, you know, detailed information first and be double-checking all the numbers that you're putting in uh, when you're transacting on, online. Uh, make sure you're using um, a security software on your computer. Um, they, these are all tips that you can take to better protect yourself. But if you are subject to a loss, I think the important thing to know is that you should make a complaint. Um, call your bank directly, um, and if they are helping you, you can contact um, the Ombudsman, the Australian Financial Complaints Authority, and make a complaint about the bank. And be part of that group that does actually report the scams. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you can also um, report it to the likes of the ACCC through their Scam Watch website. I think that that website, if you haven't looked at it, it's really great. It's got a lot of information about the various scams that are out there. It's constantly updating it with the new ones that are, are out there tricking people. Um, so that's another way to kind of, if you're unsure, is this a scam or is it not, um, having a look at the Scam Watch website can be quite informative. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. We've just had the most fascinating chat about banking scams and we really hope that um, you know our listeners at home have gotten a heap out of it. Goodness knows I have. Um, and now we're, we've got Associate Professor Sam Wilson in the studio with us. Um, there's so much to learn. I want to find out what the Live Leadership Index data set is, what it's going to mean for credibility and integrity in journalism. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. What is it? Tell us everything. <laughs> Look, it's a great question. Thanks, thanks for the nice uh, softball opening. <laughs> Basically, this is a, a website that we've, um, we've been working on for the last few years, but recently renewed. It's a website devoted to understanding the nature of leadership for the public good in Australia. And it's a website that's designed to essentially empower um, citizens, consumers, to understand the nature of leadership and integrity and so forth in Australia in an unfiltered, unmediated kind of way. So if I went to the database, what am I going to see there? A collection of past news articles or will it be like who's who, like biographies of people who are prominent in leadership? I'm just trying to imagine what sorts of data might be in this database. Yeah, great question, bro. Uh, so, sorry. <laughs> so the purpose of this, of this website is to understand how, the, how Australians view our institutions. 
So the broader context here is that for years now, we all know that our, our social institutions have been on the nose. They're seen to serve their own interests rather than the broader public interest. And, of course, people have seen that for years. And there's been no end of, of articles in, in papers about this. Um, but one thing we noticed was that oftentimes there's, there's very little data. So a journalist might actually start an article talking about, say, public integrity or the latest shenanigans in, in, in the federal government, for example, but there was no broader context and there was no sort of sense of how one thing led to another or how these things change over time. It was all very snapshot and, and no sense of the overall pattern. Now, that's important, though, to understand the pattern. And so what we try to do is understand how these things change over time in response to what, but also not only just to track and measure, but also to use this, this knowledge to understand how can we actually improve things. The whole purpose of this is to improve the practice of leadership for the good, and this is one way to do it in, with live data from Australians all across the country. It's available every month, and uh, basically people have insights, uh, so crowdsource insights at, at their hands for free. Wow. I, yeah. Well, I don't know. I guess it does make me immediately think of federal politics and a failure in polling to really um, be as accurate in terms of their predictions in recent years as they have been in the past. Um, primarily, you know, there's a lot of arguments for why that is, but, you know, it comes down to bad polling data. And I, I wonder, you know, are there any ways in which you think a database like this or something designed in this sort of interactive, regular cadence sort of way might have been able to pick up on trends like Simon Holmes' court and his Climate 200 sort of faction or things like that. Like, where, where do you see it practically, um, you know, being able to, to help us understand what's going on? Yes, yeah, a really great question. So, obviously, polls play a role and they're, they're important, and they, but, they, again, they just give us snapshots and they ask the questions that we may, we may not ask ourselves. And it's very hard to get the whole picture. And also polls are about various things that we may or may not know how they fit together. So, for example, you have a question about uh, accountability in one poll. Another, uh, another poll, you might have a question about trust. Another one, maybe about accountability or transparency. It all seems completely fractured. And uh, from, the, from the point of view of just a lay, a lay person, it's hard to know how it all fits together and how they transfer together and how they're all moving over time. It's also very hard to know who is actually perceiving things better or worse. I'll give you a good example. So after the, the last few years were a bit of a roller coaster in terms of leadership for the good, and uh, things were great, going great, for the, well, as far as they could have been for the federal government at the time, up until the end of 2020. And then, of course, we had all of the revelations about the sexual misconduct and so forth. And what we saw that, of course, perceptions of leadership in, in federal government declined, but not for everyone. So for men, for example, they, they decline, but at a much shallower rate. But for women, they decline quite steeply. Now, there, there are questions there, like why, why weren't they declining in the same sort I'm of way? I'm just going to punch Paul here on behalf of me. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we can actually use this to get a sense of, okay, how, how is public opinion moving? For whom is it moving more or less? And why might that be? And we can actually drill down further. And the beauty of this is that you can drill down as far as you, get, you want to go to see who's thinking what, where, and where are, things, where are things sort of more pronounced? And what does it mean? So it's meant to spur further questions. And in terms of the scale of the data, like, is it how... I sort of have two questions. I'm interested in, like, the, the verticality of it. Like, are you just looking at federal... This idea of federal leadership, but I'm also interested in trends that you're seeing. And is it fractal in nature? I'm really curious about that as well. Oh, so first, first one's much easier. Start with it. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
This issue of, of leadership for the good or just generally serving the public interest is germane to all social institutions. The government prefers the worst. As far as the public is concerned, they are, this will be no surprise to your audience, um, seen as largely self-serving, more concerned with vested interests, largely unconcerned with the wider public interest. Now, I'm sure people uh, in Parliament do care, but in terms of the broader institution, not so much. But uh, we also want to make the point that it's not just federal government or state government. It's actually all of our institutions across all sectors. And so what we try and do is not only understand all these different indicators and how they fit together, you know, the trust, accountability and so forth, and many others besides, but also what it looks like across the board to give us the broader context. And this is really helpful to understand just why it is, for example, that governments are not really trusted, but also to your point about your earlier topics, why tech companies are not really trusted either, or why banks aren't trusted. And so by combining this data in various ways, we get some really keen insights into that. So, for example, tech companies, they're seen as yeah, pretty competent, but, but essentially having bad intentions, you know, like the robots they create, you could say. <laughs> and banking too. You know, they're competent, they, do, they, can, they can enact their intentions, but unfortunately their intentions aren't great. So we can really unpack it to get a sense of why people think the way they think at a really deep fundamental level. To your fractal, fractal question... Maybe we can come back to that one. That one's, that one's complicated. It <laughs> needs a glass of wine, I think. Yeah. <laughs> and it's so visual. You need diagrams to answer that question, really. Well, I mean, I think maybe, well, the, maybe the, the higher level question of that is, like, what, what trends are you observing coming out of this research? Are there things that you can really... Like, you've talked a little bit about that, you know, changing nature of, of kind of the federal government, but also tech companies. Are there... Are there other trends that are sort of interesting emerging? Yeah, there are. And um, they're apparent across the board as well. And so uh, one, the main finding, I would say, is that when people think about our institutions, they see them as basically competent. You know, they, they, they're generally skillful. They're able to enact their intentions. They're, they're generally reliable, for example. But the big thing is this. They, their intentions aren't, aren't great. They're seen as being insincere. They're seen, seen as not being cooperative. And when push comes to shove, they look after themselves before they look after the people they serve, whether they're customers or whether it's the broader society. Now, this is germane across the board, but most pronounced with, um, with governments and tech companies and banks. So cynics would look at a data source like this and think, we could weaponise this data you know, look for the fear points, the pain points to press on to manipulate people. To what extent do you think the sort of people who do that already have this data anyway? Um, and I'm going to – this is terrible form, but I'm going to do it too. I'm going to have a double, double-header double question. But, but, you know, on the flip side of that, you know, there's incredible power in starting to articulate an arc that can get a bit of traction in how things are reported. So, you know, journalists do have incredible power – and to what extent do you think that, that that can balance out, you know, any potential negative effects? You know, is that how, you know, when you present a project like this to the Ethics Committee, which I imagine someone did coming out of a university, you know, were these the sort of issues that were coming up? That's more than a double-headed. That's, 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 that's a hydra yeah. of a question. Whole bottle of wine. <laughs> Answer you want. Bottle of wine, crack on fire. <laughs> I mean, it is just so interesting. No, of course. Yeah. Well, like any, any sort of any sort of taken insight, it can be used for uh, good or nefarious purposes. And so what we try and do to 
uh, avoid that is to make sure everything is as transparent as possible. So we're very clear about how we collect the sample. It's 1,000 people per quarter, nationally representative. We report that. And so all the data is there. And we also uh, show all the questions we ask. And all the data is freely available, no no paywalls. And people can download the data to create whatever infographics they want as well. And the thing is, someone can use that to present something, but anyone can verify it. It's all there. And it's not about me taking you taking my word for it. It's what does the data say? And so we're trying to be as neutral as we possibly can. I mean, obviously, the questions you ask, we ask some, some questions and not other ones. But basically, we're trying to be as, as transparent as possible and to create this new public good. And other pe- people may misuse things, but... Uh, mm-hmm. I think we've got some good protections against that by, by virtue of being so clear and plain about what we're doing and what it means. Mm. And um, on, the, on the technical front, <laughs> can I ask if you know, are you open to open sourcing? If someone, if someone decides to plug a hole, a perceived hole in the data and sort of add to your data set, would that be something you'd be open to? Or would it be more like, sure, take our data, it's open source, and then put it into your other dashboard and mash it up? Well, people can download the data and use it however they wish, mm. really. Mm-hmm. And so we're sort of completely open to that. So currently the data it, it, databases themselves aren't, aren't available in open source waves. So yeah. all the results are, and people can cut the results wherever they like. But so in terms of the whole database, that's not actually out there. Fair. <laughs> also, I'm thinking of little dashboard projects on the weekend, which is it's always a bad sign when I start thinking that way. Like Vanessa, I know. Go and enjoy the outdoors. Enjoy the outdoors. <laughs> Power BI makes it so easy. Anyway, enjoy yourself. Well, actually, that's, that's a good example. Actually, enjoy the outdoors. So we can even track things like uh, uh, to what extent uh, uh, institutions creating so, uh, social and environmental value, mm. and so you get a sense of well, um, to what extent should organisations be helping to sustain the outdoors, and who should be doing more who's doing enough no one's doing enough never <laughs> and we always see that too that people's expectations are always at variance with what they perceive and uh never the twain shall meet nevertheless it gives you a sense of what you might you might aspire to so i'd love to jump into a bit of your background and how you got into this space because we've read that you're a social psychologist mm. um what do social psychologists normally do with their time, this sort of project? Because this is pretty emergent, right? So I'm just sort of like, what does a social psychologist do and how does that lend itself to where this project is? A good question. Uh, social psychs, um, well, we think we, our, our school's skills are domain to a host, a host of things, so that's probably just the conceit of a social psych. But, um, I mean, social psychology is fundamentally is trying to understand why people think the way they think and understanding is a basic dimensions of social perception. And so... You know, so, for example, why do we sort of uh, see robots as as being highly capable but but lacking good intentions, for example, lacking emotions? Um, why is it that we see uh, older older folks like our grandparents as warm but but essentially incompetent, and you know we feel emotions that like pity rather than contempt and those types of things? Yeah. So we can actually understand some of the substrates behind our sort of thinking, or the under, underneath our thinking. Now, to your point, Vanessa, so I can. I, I look, look at your face here. I need to get closer to the question. Match to the database. Match to the yeah, database. Where does, it, where does it meet that? <laughs> well, actually, it's not, not hugely connected but the, the, in terms of how I started the project, but it is related to how we measure. So, for example, how we view our institutions, whether it's government, tech companies, banks, whatever it is, uh, they basically we view them using the same apparatus as we use to view people or, or our groups or countries. And so there are two very fundamental uh, 
dimensions, if you like, of, of perception. So we often perceive how, make judgments about how warm someone is, or how, so how warm, how friendly and trustworthy, and you know, if I, will you will you harm me in some way? That's that basic judgment. Um, and the other one is, well, um, how capable are you? Are you actually able to implement your intentions? Very similar reasoning occurs for this for organisations as well. Yeah, and we see that, for example, that. When you're, when you're warmer, when you have good intentions or are seen to have good intentions, and when you're seen as being capable, we tend to trust. We tend to see you having social license. But when you, when you lack good intentions, actually that's the worst thing, when you lack good intentions, you're seen as not serving the good, no social license, not contributing to public value, a whole host of things that we're trying to improve. It's all afoot. It's great. <laughs> it sounds like you might be... Oh, my economist friends are going to get angry. But like the, 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 you know, the antidote to some of the economists, well, people behave like buying units, you know, and, yeah, and you know, you actually get to some of the, the psychology, the feelings behind that. So that, that makes a bit of sense to me. Yes, well, that's, that's right. And, and uh, to our economist friends, I'm sure they, um, they uh, are quite open to these ideas, given that all the work on biases and heuristics now is part of the way they breathe and nudge and so forth. So... There are things things are changing there, but yes, with apologies to our economists, friends. <laughs> Love you guys. Uh, yes. Yeah. Well, the great thing about this database is, as we've said, anyone can go and check it out. Um, what's What's the best way to, to do that? Do you, do you have the, the URL in your head or shall we read it out? No, the best way is to go to the Australian Leadership Index.org and it's all there. You can go to the dashboard, look at the exact summary if you want the high-level insights. Go to the custom chart builder if you want to build your own charts and export the data to create your own infographics. Um, so really intuitive. And any questions, give us a call. Simple Amazing. as that. I love going to the exact summary. It makes me feel so powerful. <laughs> so, <good>. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got our Associate Professor Sam Wilson in the studio. Thanks so much for You're joining us this evening, Sam. Absolute hoot. Triple R. We are getting right to the end of our show, so we're going to have a look at just a couple of our favourite little moments that have happened this week. Paul, kick Some us off. super quick weird news of the week. This is something I discovered um, from Facebook, so maybe they are good for something, is that there's apparently a thing called the leap second. Um, so all of the atomic clocks that your computers effectively get the time from, occasionally, because of geological changes or sea level, there has to be a whole second added. Um, That's actually the date of my birthday. Is that... <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> um, and Meta is calling for the removal of it um, because it causes so many issues when these seconds. And Google have a really interesting approach to it where they basically smear that second over a 24-hour period. Um, if you want to check out developers.google.com slash time slash smear for more information, yeah. I would encourage you to do that. I'm over 5,000 leap seconds old. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> That's magnificent. I wanted to throw in a little plug for um, Plug Boomtish. Um, a little website I found, take note of this, people, plugshare.com. It's how to find every EV charger in Australia. It's um, powered by Google Maps, looks great, um, is cute as heck, and, um, yeah, it's going to be really handy for those EV punters out there. That is brilliant. I aspire to being one of those EV punters. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, let's jump quickly to events, shall we? Uh, In... uh... In events, PAX Australia is coming up 7th to the 9th of October. 
uh, they've already sold out the three day badges, so that's why we're flagging it so early. Saturday badges are fifty percent gone. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Absolutely. And um, super quickly, Microsoft Mondays with Girl Geek Academy are happening. Free for all high school age girls. Next Monday, 5pm, learning about how to use classes in CSS. All, all good stuff, all cute. Go, go check out girlgeekacademy.com and check out their events. Thank you to our guests, Jared Brody and Samuel Wilson, or Sam Wilson. And thank you to Vanessa and Paul, my co-cahoots tonight. Pleasure. Anytime. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or Bite Into It's Twitter or Facebook accounts.